All right. Great, Nigel, if you wouldn't mind. I might not make it otherwise. I mean, like, I'll make it, but I might not. <coughs> All right. You know how when you make something on a, on a computer and it looks really readable and then you put it on a big screen and you go, what does that say? I'd just like to apologise in advance because I know exactly that that's what's happening up there this morning. Um, Yeah, a mon series. No, there is a, there's a sir in there. I was like, then you had me all worried that I'd spelled sermon wrong. I was starting to freak out. Man, look, just, I was just trying to own the part I thought I'd done. Not... <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know about you. Um, this series has been really enjoyable for me, just even putting together. Um, it's, it's taken a long... Like, we are... We, I worked this out. We've managed to do one in April, one in May, one in April, one in May, and now we're in part three in June. So we're averaging one sermon for this series <laughs> per month, uh, which is still less time than it took to write the Bible. So we're doing okay. Um, but I, I just there's something about this this year for me. And if I can, before I get into my sermon, if I can just, I guess, pastor a little bit for a minute, um, I. 2023 for us as a church has been the year of engagement, and I think we've really risen to that. I've seen lots of different ways um, and heard lots of testimonies of how people have engaged. Uh, I believe God is calling his people, not just in church. I just believe God, like those who are made in the image of God, are starting to hear his voice, that call to re-engage. We're seeing that in a number of different spaces uh, where people are just hearing that call and going, I need to re-engage with church. For some of them, they've never been engaged with church, but they go, I'm being, it's like I'm being called home. Uh, and so th- this year, uh, our-, our theme has been to re-engage with discipleship, to re-engage with fellowship, and to re-engage with the mission of God, which is reflections of our vision statement to be a church that grows up, in, and out uh, in our community. And I've, I've seen that-, that happen, but one of the things I want to encourage you is it's July now. July- Are we in July yet? Yeah. Not quite. June, nearly. We're at the end of June. I'm Honestly, I... I had one of those fever dreams. You've had a fever dream? Oh, the worst things. And I was like stuck on a rock flying through space and I couldn't get off. And it was like five hours and it felt like five years. And I was like, wake up. That was not a Star Wars thing. Star Wars would have been way cooler. There would have been lightsabers. There would have been, I was just clinging to my bed going, I want to get off. And it's hot and I'm thirsty and I can't breathe. Anyway, um, so yeah, don't get... Don't get a fever. It's a bad idea. Um, but what I'm aware of is we've reached the, kind of the halfway point in the year where everybody starts to go, it's cold. I'm tired. Uh, you know, if, I, if I'm honest, I've achieved some really good things this year. We could call it. We could call it. Yep, I'm, I'm happy with that. Or, or you go the other way and go, I've achieved nothing this year and it's probably not going to go anywhere good, so we'll just chill. Uh, we did not call this the semester of re-engagement. I believe, we, we, and we believe that we heard when we, we sat last year and we named the year before the year started that God was calling us to re-engage. And so I just want to encourage you, I want to empathize with you to go, I'm at, a, at that kind of midpoint where again, I've had a week and it's just been on and on and you sort of go, when is it going to stop? Take a moment to breathe, but do not give up on the call to re-engage this year. 
Do not call. And I'm not talking about the call from me to re-engage. I'm talking about the call from God for his church to be re-engaged. Because I believe that God has good things for us uh, in the second half of this year. I believe God has good things ahead for his church. I say good things not in the way that perhaps you, are, you and I are used to measuring good things. Uh, but I believe God is stirring and moving. Uh, I was speaking to someone else again this week who, again, used that word, the shift. There's, it's like there's a shift. Uh, and so I'm excited um, for the God who continues to shift things. And so if it, things, if it feels like things in your life are shifting, uh, whether that's a, it feels like a good shift or a painful shift or an uncomfortable shift, I want to encourage you. I believe that God is also doing a shift. Uh, and there's an invitation to be part of what he is doing, which is not just for this church, uh, but the church. Honestly, uh, we had our, our Blenheim Christian Ministers Association meeting again two weeks ago, and we never got to the agenda because it was just there were just too many stories, too many exciting things that God is doing. Um, and again, just the support. Last week we all sat, this morning Tom Hatch at the Elam Church is preaching a sermon that we all wrote together around the table. So um, I don't know if he's putting all our names on it. Um, <laughs> and I said, can I bring mine for next week and can we all sort of workshop that next week? Um, but there's just something like God is stirring and we're collaborating uh, and, and going, God, we just want to hear what it is that you want for your church. And so within that, this one of the reasons that we've been doing this, doing this series uh, is because I believe that there's an opportunity to re-engage with the most powerful book that's ever been written that many of us have multiple copies of at home that just collects dust. Uh, I pulled mine out after a week of... No- I'll be honest with you, I haven't been very good at reading it this week because I haven't been very good at doing anything. I pulled it out of my bag this morning and it had a cockroach crawling out of it. I'm like, ah! So that was like one week. So if you've got more than one cockroach in your Bible, it's probably time to like pull it out. Uh, But I wanted to look at this series because I believe that, as I said, the Bible is the most powerful book that's ever been written. (coughs) If you've got got cockroaches calling out of your digital one, that's a whole different problem. I don't know how we deal with that. Um, I believe this is the most powerful book that's ever been written. And, uh, but I believe that it's been misused. I believe that it's been misunderstood. I believe it's, it can be quite intimidating. And so the goal of this series has been to re-inspire us to pick up that book again that most of you have. And if you don't have, uh, have one very freely available to you, either on an app or, or so on. Uh, but secondly, I wanted to give you some tools and equip us so that when we pick it up together, actually, as we go, because there's nothing worse than getting all inspired for something, and this is going to be great, and then you pick it up and you go, uh, I'll be real with you, Pastor, I'm struggling. <laughs> and so I wanted to, this series was about inspiring us, but also equipping us to get some stuff out of it. And so we've done two parts so far. If you remember back, the first one we did, we looked at the Bible as a whole story. We particularly looked at from like Genesis to the birth of Jesus and just the big history of the Bible because we know all these parts and pockets of the story, but how many of us had ever just heard it laid out? And um, I loved doing that. I loved writing it and I loved hearing the feedback from people. I had one of my elders come who said, I've read my Bible every year for 20 years. That's the most sense it's ever made to me. That's why I'm in this job. Because there's this idea that there's the most powerful story that's ever written, and it can make more sense to us than it's made before. And so we looked at just the history of, of why God did what he did, how he did what he did, how he used what mankind did, and our constant failures to bring about the coming of the Messiah. And then this, in part two, 
uh, we looked at that lens of Scripture. Remember I had that camera lens up here and we were talking about how there's three lenses of Scripture, that the Bible is God's Word or that the Bible contains God's Word or that the Bible reveals God's Word. And so often we tend to look through one of those uh, and, and whichever our preference is. But actually, if we put them all together like a camera lens, then we get this, we get this powerful lens that we, that we can look at Scripture and life through where all three of those things are true, that the Bible contains God's Word, reveals God's Word, but also is His Word. And it allows us to uh, unpack it in a more beautiful way. Remember, we looked at the dilemma of the firstborn. Uh, if you weren't here, you need, to, you need to go back and find these. They're online. <coughs> but we looked just very quickly at the dilemma of the firstborn because the Bible says quite clearly that it should always be the firstborn that receives the blessing. And then we looked through the Bible how many times the secondborn gets the blessing. Like over and over and over and over again. And we went, so does this Bible contradict itself? Because it tells us one thing and then does another thing. And that would normally be where a lot of us would go, oh, this is too hard. But we examined how when we look through that lens, what we see is that the Bible shows us a beautiful picture of what we hear and then what we see so that we reveal something of God. Because later on, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. And the Bible tells us that the firstborn deserves the blessing. But who receives the blessing of the son? We do. The church does. His, his people do. And so this whole thing, what would be looked at as a contradiction in the Bible, is actually a beautiful grace of God to help us understand just how big and how gracious and how majestic He is. And I could go, we could do a thousand different exercises of that, but we're just kind of glassing over the surface of this. Uh, if you didn't hear that whole sermon, I would encourage you to, to seek it out. This morning, I want to take kind of that idea, but I want to build on and talk about the law. And I want to talk about the law because there's nothing more confusing to many Christians, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, then what are we supposed to do with this thing, the law? And we've got pretty good at just kind of like not talking about the bits that make us uncomfortable. But I love to make people uncomfortable. Um, so it's my superpower. So I, I want to just like look at it a little bit this morning and what it means for us. See, the law is one of the most controversial topics in the Bible. Paul says this. He says that those who live by the law will die by the law. He says it in Galatians chapter 3 this way. For all who rely on the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. This is Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 to 14. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or hung on a tree or hung on a cross. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Not by the law, but by faith. Just read, this, read a scripture very similar to this first thing from Ephesians. <coughs> and so Paul kind of like, he spends a lot of his time unpacking this whole thing about how you've been redeemed from the law. But he makes this statement in Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Romans chapter 3, verse 31, he says, do we then 
overthrow the law by this faith. By no means, says Paul. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, if we can just take a minute and just acknowledge as Christians without trying to seem like we've got it all together, that's a very confusing contradiction, right? That's a very confusing tension that exists in the Bible where one minute Paul is going, ah, the law is a curse and we've been redeemed, but we should all uphold it. And we go, Paul, that's quite hard. That's, I'm a little confused. <clears throat> and then if we're honest, we start to get a little bit more confused because like, the law seems to change. Like certain things that used to happen then don't seem to happen. And there's a bunch of things that we used to do that we don't do. And people go, why don't you do that one anymore? Because you go, well, we don't. And you go, why do you still that one? Still do that one? And you go, because we do. And, and, and you go, well, why don't you do that one? You go, ah, it was too hard for me. But you should do that one. And like, we go, you should do that one, but not me do that one. Like everyone else should do that one, but not me that one. That one's hard. And, and so we have this whole thing. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we're free from this law, but we're expected to uphold it. And one of the criticisms that comes against the church is that we're very good at picking and choosing our laws. And they're right in a sense, but there are also some laws that we don't, we seem to know in our spirit, like, I don't feel like I need to follow that anymore. I want to help that clarification for you this morning. <clears throat> I want to help you to understand why and how and what parts of the law and all these sorts of things, why there's a sense that actually if I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to still uphold the law. And then you go, but Peter also ate bacon and I really like bacon. And you probably really like bacon. And there's a law that says you shouldn't eat bacon that none of us really follow. And so we're going to look at that, right? We're not going to look at the bacon one explicitly, but I'm going to give you the tools so that you can eat bacon guilt-free. Um, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just pray right there for just a moment, just to acknowledge his presence. <clears throat> See, let's just, let's just, let me just talk about the law for a minute longer. There, there are a couple of different counts, depending on who you ask, because some people kind of split laws into two or some kind of combine two into one. But one of the generally traditionally held numbers is that the Bible contains 613 laws. 613 laws, and those are given in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first four books of the Bible after the book of Genesis, known as the Torah or the law. Now, 613 laws is a lot to memorize. I'm sure if we went around the room, we'd go, I got, I got maybe the first six of the ten, the big ten ones, you know, like, so let alone 613. And let me get this. Let me just unpack this. 630 laws, and they range from things as serious as this to ridiculous as this. Don't murder people. Good rule. Don't sleep with your father's wife. Good rule. Don't forget to lock the gate on your ox paddock. Strange rule. But I, I, don't wear clothes of more than two materials. Of more than one material. Okay. Uh, always bless God after. Always bless God after your meal. Hang on a minute. <laughs> I think we got that one wrong. <laughs> Don't work on the Sabbath. 
Don't get tattoos, don't eat bacon. Oh, and also don't throw your children in the fire to sacrifice them to Molech. <laughs> so there's like all these rules and some of them are super serious and some of them are like, that's a very specific instruction, God. <clears throat> and then we had this confusion, right? Because even in the Bible, it looks like some of those rules seem to change by the end of the New Testament. God says, don't eat bacon. Peter turns up to like the first council eating pork rinds, going like, I, Jesus said, don't call unclean. Well, he's made clean. You go, well, who gets to do that? So before we know, if we're honest, it's just confusing, right? And we need to have a better understanding than just like, ah, oh, well, we'll just wing it as we go. Because bacon is good. Amen. It's the most emphatic amen I think I've ever had. It's... Yeah. Who's hungry? It's... See, how do we know? Do we just make it up? Do we just agree together? And does it matter? It'd be way easier, right? If we could have something. And so I'm going to give you a tool. And to do that, we can go right back to the Reformation. But because I'm a proud Baptist, we're going to go to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. The 1689 Baptist... It was a good year, I remember it fondly. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This document talks about the law in three distinct parts. And you've probably... Uh, heard, you, or if you're into this sort of thing, you might have heard them before. Uh, I'm going to... Do nothing, apparently. Did that get plugged in? It did get sat on the top. Yep. Okay, I got it. Cool. Perfect. All right. So three divisions of the law. You got your sermon notes there. And they break down as this. The first one. Oh, oh, I'll do it. <laughs> is moral law. Right? The second one is civil law. And the third one is ceremonial law. So this started right back again. There's a whole bunch of church history. But again, there are a number of movements at a point in history. And the Baptists in 1689 who went, we agree with these three divisions of the law of Moses, of the law of the Old Testament, of the law of Scriptures. Every single one of those 613 laws fits into one of these divisions somewhere, Right? Let me unpack those with you a little bit, and then we'll get into their purpose. Uh, here we go. Moral law. These laws were about righteousness. Perhaps the best way to describe them is moral laws were about pleasing God. These were about the laws. These are the things that God likes and God doesn't like. There are things in life that make God happy, and there are things in life that upset him. Murder, adultery, blasphemy, idolatry. Part of being God's people and following God was knowing what he liked and didn't like and doing our best to live accordingly. And so there's a whole portion of scripture that is devoted to unpacking the moral law, the things that hurt God's heart. You will be interested to know this morning, eating bacon doesn't hurt God's heart. And I'll prove that as we go. Because the second set of laws was this one. Might hurt your heart, by the way, if you eat too much. But <clears throat> civil law 
also known as judicial law, these were laws about living in community. Living in community. See, we live, again, we've got a number of civil laws. There's certain things that we agree to, whether we like them or not, that come from living in New Zealand, that these are the laws we agree to. These are our civil laws. Uh, Now, you've got to remember, I want you to think for a moment, the civil law, you know, in the beginning of the Bible, was given to a bunch of people who had been slaves in Egypt for about 400 years, generations of people. Now, they had lived worse conditions than the pets of the Egyptians, right? So the Jews had just come out of 400 years of slavery where they hadn't had rights, they didn't have their own community, they lived in a pagan culture that did things their own way, and even the rules that applied to the Egyptians didn't tend to apply to their slaves and their servants. So suddenly, I want you to imagine that your family's been in slavery for 400 generations, and then suddenly... You're like your own group of people, and it's like, okay, we have a society now. But we have no idea how to treat each other. We have no idea how to manage or govern ourselves. We have no idea what's right or wrong, because all the examples we've seen around us for the last week while haven't been really good. We have no idea how we're supposed to treat our servants, because we know we didn't like it, so let's probably not do it that way. So you've got this entire, you've got millions and millions of people. Now, in the desert, going, we don't know how to have community. And so God goes, it's all right. I'll teach you. And so he gives them what we call the civil law. He teaches them how to learn to live together. And so suddenly, there is literally a law in the Bible that says, make sure you lock the gate on your ox paddock. And it goes on to say this, because if your ox gets out and killed your neighbor and you didn't lock the gate, you're a murderer. But if you lock the gate and the ox gets out, it's a really unfortunate accident. And you should be forgiven and things should be done to put it right. But it's different than if you forgot to lock the gate. So, so, so like civil law is about personal responsibility to the community that you live in. Now, probably there's not too many people here who when they go to bed have to remind themselves to lock the gate that their ox is paddock, of their ox paddock. Maybe you've set up a little paddock just like, I'm just trying to fulfill, I'm just trying to follow the law. You know, I made a little paddock. I don't have an ox, but I lock the gate every night. <clears throat> so, so these civil laws were about how to live in society. Now, we looked at one of these last week, right? Because some of these were also about how God wanted his people to look different. So one of these we looked at a couple of weeks ago was about, you know, when you conquer an enemy territory and you find a woman who's pleasing to your eye, you can take her as your, as your wife or your partner as, as other kingdoms would, but you're going to let her mourn her mother and father, which they didn't let her do. So that's a civil law leaning into God's moral law, right? Because we like people. And so we're going to use our, our civil law is going to be built around this idea that we're going to treat others, even outsiders, differently. Does that make sense? Is this helping some people at least a little bit so far? I promise you it's going to go to another level in a minute. All right. Gosh, there's a lot of notes here. All right, let's move into the third one, and then we'll kind of go back. So then we have the ceremonial law. 
I want you to think, like, there is a significant number of the 613 laws that are devoted to ceremonial law. Ceremonial law is perhaps the ones that we're least familiar with, or at least that we misunderstand the easiest, because they were all the rules that were established around feasts, sacrifice, the priestly lines, and and, and similar. Uh, So ceremonial laws included things like how many days to fast, or how many days to feast, what to make the food out of, what not to make the food out of, things you should eat, things you shouldn't eat, things you shouldn't touch, things you shouldn't say, things you shouldn't do. And if you did those things, how would you go about making yourself clean again? Uh, who could and couldn't have contact with the priests? Who could and couldn't come into the presence of God in the temple? Um, so these ceremonial laws were all about creating a separation between the sacred and the common. They were all about highlighting that there are things that are common and there are things that are sacred. And so when we, when we think about this a little bit more... The ceremonial law wasn't about creating separation between people. It was about helping us to see that God, despite the fact that he was sacred and above, was willing to be part of his community. And all of those feasts, all, and if you've ever sat through, like especially if you've ever been to Dave and Margaret Doreen's life group, um, they, they show you how every single one of the feasts was about revealing Jesus. Because here's the thing, the ceremonial law, everything, the purpose of the entire ceremonial law was to reveal the Messiah. This idea that there was a Messiah coming and we want you to recognize him. The entire purpose was to reveal the Messiah. I want you to think for a minute about, let's just take one, the ceremony of Passover. Think about how many laws in the Bible you could go and read in your own time about how many Uh, ceremonial rules there were around Passover, how the lamb had to be killed, how it had to be cooked, how it had to be eaten, what had to be done with the leftovers, what you had to do with the blood, all these different things, (coughs) which were meticulously laid out so that when Jesus was crucified on Passover weekend, people would go, it's quite similar to what we're doing. He he could actually be the, the guy that this is all about. Look, they've put his blood on the posts. Of... Was, is this about him? And it was. Every single ceremonial law was pointing towards this idea that when the Messiah turned up, you would recognize him because of these laws, because of these rules. Let's look at another one. Uh, and one again that you've heard. You've heard it misused. Maybe you've misused it, in which case... Uh, but let's look at this one and we'll pull it out again at a couple of different angles. There is a law that says you should not wear clothes of more than one material, of woven of more than one material. Now, I've heard that used pretty much any time you talk about a moral law that someone's uncomfortable with. They go, well, you wear clothes of more than one material. And if you're, if you're doing that, stop it. Don't. Be smarter. Because this is a ceremonial law. See, and here's why it was a ceremonial law. There's a a law in Exodus chapter 28 that says that the ephod of the high priest, the garment of the high priest must be made from linen and dyed thread made of wool. So, So the Bible says don't wear clothing of more than one material because that's what the priest wears. Right? See how that's not a rule about this upsets God's heart? 
It's about going, I want the priest to stand out. Now, I'm going to quantify that in a minute because it was never about creating a separation between people. Why? Because the priests, why did God want the priests to stand out? Because at that stage, there was no Messiah. And at that stage, they didn't have all of the scriptures that we have now. So God needed someone to be the visible image of his character. And so he wanted them to look different, to stand out. But it was never about going, this person's special. It was about people recognizing that God was special. See, we know the reality is that in this, we would call it today clergy and laity, right? Or a clergy and a layperson or, or ministry or whatever you want to call it. But we know that those priests, those pastors, those ministers, like when God turns up, I'm in your camp, not his camp, right? Like we, I don't get to go, ah, I'm one of the sacred ones that's allowed to wear clothes of two, more than two materials. You just go, sit down, please, Right? <laughs> It was never about creating separation between people. It was about revealing the glory of God. Here's why. Because when Jesus turned up, who the Bible tells us spiritually is clothed in heavenly garment, and the priests are over there in their special two material, whatever, doing their super ceremonial thing, and Jesus, who is clothed in righteousness himself, says, I'm going to sit with the common person. They go, that's why we do that. So that we would recognize the Messiah. Because you are so much holier than them, and yet you eat with us. And so now we don't have this whole thing about two materials or whatever. Why? Because you don't need your priest to reveal your Messiah to you because he's already come and the Holy Spirit is capable of revealing himself, which is why we live in a time where clergy and laity need to die in a hole. And we just do church together. It was almost as good as the bacon. (laughs) Like we are all just people following after Jesus. Now, so we got those up there. The three divisions of the law, moral, civil, ceremonial. The three purposes, moral law is about pleasing God. Civil law is about living in community. Ceremonial law is about revealing the Messiah. So then you go, okay, this is getting a little complicated. It's making a little bit more sense, but am I allowed to eat bacon? Am I allowed to wear that nice dress that's got two, two materials? And to do that, there's a diagram that's in your notes, and I'm going to have it on the, on the thingy madudu up here. It's a very technical term. Um, and I'm using the time that we have left. I want to show you how we navigate this. And this will give you freedom so that when you read the scripture, you go, ah, I know how that works for me. I know what that does for me. So there's a diagram. uh, And what basically what we're going to look at, (coughs) that's a cross. Yep. The cross is symbolic of Jesus. All of the laws that were written were written pre-Jesus. They were written in the Old Testament thousands of years before Jesus came along. And when they hit the cross, when Jesus happens, you'll watch and you'll notice that something happens to each of these three types of laws. So we've got our moral law, our civil law, and our ceremonial law. And here's the thing that we notice about moral laws is that they endure. Shock horror, the things that upset God yesterday still upset Him today. The things that please God today are the same things that pleased Him yesterday. Yesterday. 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you see this, right? Right through the Bible. God is still, uh, the New Testament says, what does he love? He loves righteousness. He loves obedience. He loves justice. He loves mercy. He loves humility. He doesn't like murder, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, greed, gluttony. Look, I don't want to get caught up with whether these things are legal or socially acceptable. I'm just saying Jesus gets to decide what he likes and what he doesn't. And he goes, these things hurt my heart. And they still hurt my heart after the cross. Then we've got our civil law, right? And so that hits the cross. And you sort of see like, it comes out at the same point, but it kind of changes, right? And we know this, but what we don't understand is why we know this. And so what I want to give you now is the tools so that you'll go away going, now I understand why my heart knows it inherently, but I can explain it with my words. And the reason is, is this. Um, well, civil laws, I'll give you the word. They adapt. And the reason they adapt is this. God's kingdom no longer manifests through a state or a nation, but in the hearts of all believers. See, see, in the Old Testament, it's like God's whole thing was like, that's my nation. That's my country. That's my kingdom. But Jesus says, and read this. In fact, I'll read it to you. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to 21. This is Jesus being spoken to about the kingdom. <clears throat> and on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Normal people say, here it is. Or, there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you or among you. So, so the, the kingdom of God is no longer about establishing some set of laws for a theocratic nation. And let, can I just say, if some Christian politicians could get this through their heads, we would be in a better state of mind. It's not about creating a theocratic nation anymore. Civil law now adapts or refracts and becomes about how people who claim to be of God's kingdom treat each other, right? It's no longer about what country you live in or what law you live under. It's about saying, if I am God's child and I am part of God's kingdom, then the civil law is now how we live in community, right? So it, it's not really about whether you locked your ox up last night. But it is about whether you live in such a way that's careful and loving of your neighbor. Yeah. Right? So it's now not the specifics because we haven't been slaves for 400 years. And so God doesn't need to spell it out to us and go, hey, probably don't sleep with your father's mother. We, go, we know. You know. Like most of modern society now goes, I don't need a God to tell me that's a bad idea. I go, good. That shows that what God's doing is working. Because at a time, people did. <laughs> so now we have this kind of idea, right? Where Jesus says, I mean, and Jesus says it this way, right? The world will know your disciple, you're my disciples. Why? By how you love each other. He gives us Matthew 18, this beautiful, this beautiful um, prescription of reconciliation and restoration, not judgment. It's a process of restoration. And how we go about continuing to invite people in because we're going to model something in family. See, one of the civil laws that adapts and comes into our time after the cross of Jesus is that we forgive, we restore, and we reconcile in a world that likes to cancel. Right? 
this is how we... So, so the moral law endures, the civil law adapts, then we come to the ceremonial law. <clears throat> and I want to give you a word for that too. It's reimagined. So you notice that it comes out at a completely different space. And probably, here's the thing, I, and this is where I guess I'm going a little bit different, because you've possibly been told this one endures, this one kind of, and this one just disappears. I disagree. And here's why I disagree. Because we still live in a world that needs the Messiah revealed to them. Right? We still live in a world of people who do not yet see the Messiah. So there's still a need, in my view, for ceremonial law. But there's a major difference. Because back here, the ceremonial law was about revealing a Messiah who hadn't come yet. Our law, our time, is about revealing a Messiah who is alive, living, and active, and working in the hearts of every single believer. And in fact, in the hearts of communities. And this is what I love about Arotahi is that they're going and going, Jesus is already working. How do we reveal him? So we're not trying to reveal a Jesus that hasn't arrived yet. We're trying to reveal a Jesus that's been, who's coming again, and is working on the earth right now through his Holy Spirit. So the question becomes, how do we do that? I'll tell you right now, it's not by sacrificing sheep. It's not by holding Passover festivals. It's not by doing all the old traditional things, like going back to all the old ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws are the way that we live. They're individual and they're personal that reveal God's work in us to other people. So it's not about whether I do this because I'm trying to please God or not. I'll give, I'll give you the classic example, right? Uh, when I was a teenager, I was at Marlboro Boys College, and the Kiwi binge drinking culture thing, was underage drinking, it was, it was massive. And I wasn't a drinker. I'd never actually touched a drop of alcohol. And the reason it started wasn't actually religious at all. It was just there had never been any alcohol in my house growing up except for a glass of wine at Christmas for mum. And I just had kind of no interest. I liked Coca-Cola. That was good enough for me. Um, but it became this thing in my school that that's Shannon and he doesn't drink alcohol because he believes in God. And I'm like... Is that, why I, is that why I do that? Well, it is now, right? And so it became my ceremonial law, my way of revealing that my faith in God was serious. Now, was it a moral law? No. Was it a civil law? I mean, there was probably an issue at the age of 14, right? But no, it was a ceremonial thing. I was going, I choose to live the way that I do because Jesus is more important to me, and I hope you see that. And so we, when we say in today's, ah, oh, the ceremonial laws, don't worry about them. I hear what we're saying. But what I think we should be saying is let's reimagine them. And go, what are the, because actually if you did some thinking for a minute here, if I was to give you five minutes, I won't. Um, you can have it when, when we're done. Um, but if you were to take five minutes, you would be able to think about several ceremonial things that you do in your life that are not about pleasing God. They're about revealing the Messiah to your community, right? You'd be able to think of things. Uh, so they might be they might be simple little. Um, I was talking with Rodney the other day. Can I use your one as an example? Rodney always takes his hat off before he prays, because that's how they used to do it in boys' brigade. And I'd never noticed this until he mentioned it to me. 
And now every time we're in a prayer meeting and I go, let's pray, the first thing I notice is Rodney's hat comes off. Now, does God care? Does it hurt God's heart if you pray with a hat on? In fact, if you go back to Jewish laws, he kind of preferred it. Right? It was like, don't pray unless you've got something on your head. But it's a ceremonial thing. It's something that he does as an acknowledgement of God is real in my life. He doesn't actually do it necessarily for anybody else. But I've now noticed it. And I go, that's cool. So what are the things that you do? It may be something like saying grace for a meal. You got someone around. You know, we do this, uh, this. This is one of my favorite ones at youth group. Now we get to the end, and I'm, I'm learning the culture. So we're, we're changing the culture, but I'm also relearning because I haven't been in youth ministry for years. I was in it about like, I don't know, five, ten years ago. We had some fun, eh, boys? Good times. Um, <coughs> but now we get to the point, and I go, all right, that's the night. You can go get supper. And one of the one of them who doesn't come to church ever goes, whoa, 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 been said grace. Oh, yeah. And I didn't say grace because I went, I don't need to say grace. It's potato chips. It's unhealthy. <laughs> Nothing, no amount of prayer that I pray is going to make that good for me. <laughs> but then I realized, no, we do it because we demonstrate our gratitude to God. Amen. And we do it, and it's become a ceremonial law at our youth group that we say grace before we eat food. And now they go, we didn't say grace. Why? Why, why do they, for them it's become a habit, but for us it's about going, God is real. And we just acknowledge him before we eat. It's a simple little thing. And so, yeah, I don't get up in the morning and check all my labels to go, what clothing do I wear? But I'll tell you what I do. I am careful about what clothing I wear, especially as a pastor. Like, you know, turning up with $15,000 sneakers. It's not a ceremony. It doesn't reveal God. Well, people go, I'm blessed. I'm like, trust me, you don't have to look at my shoes. So ceremonial laws are the things that we do to reveal God to others. Does that make sense? So hopefully now what you can see when you look at the Bible, you know, we talk about bacon. Let's go back to bacon because bacon's good. So bacon was this whole big ceremonial law. It was an unclean animal. It was considered unclean because of other cultures and all sorts of things. Because anyway. And so Jesus, so God says, we're not going to eat that animal. Because we're going to show people that we're different by not eating that animal. And they did. And the Jewish people became known for people who did certain things or didn't do certain things. They were circumcised. They didn't eat certain animals. They didn't work on certain days of the week. All these things. They went, man, these people are different. They must really believe in their God because they follow these laws so closely. And then later on, Jesus says to Peter, you know, you know, you know what would show them actually how real I am? If you ate bacon. <laughs> because the only thing that's going to convince someone that a Jew had an encounter with Jesus to change their life is pork. And so Peter turns up eating bacon and they go, what are you doing? And he goes, Jesus is real. And they go, well, he must be. So, so, so the ceremonial law gets reimagined. The moral law doesn't get reimagined. Some of us have got to stop reimagining the moral law. <laughs> um, let me give you one more. We looked at those, right? I didn't put the lines in your notes, but if you've got notes there and you want to put them in. See, because this comes right back to what we're called to do as a church, right? Three divisions of the law, three purposes of the law. The moral law is about pleasing God. The civil law is about living in community. The ceremonial law 
is about revealing the Messiah. Can we agree that as a church, we are still called to all three of these things? In fact, they're kind of our vision that we would be a church that grows up in our relationship with God, that we would grow in and live in a holy community that would be an example, and that we would grow out and reveal the Messiah to the world. And so I don't want to get fixed that, you know, people get caught up on, are we still called to follow the law? Yeah. Let me just ask you this question. Are we still called to do those three things? then let's do those three things to the best of our ability. Using the Bible, which is the most powerful, profound, inspirational piece of Scripture ever, as our starting guide. Because it will steer you in the right direction. Does that help someone this morning? Does that help maybe a conversation that you've had with someone who thinks your Bible's full of crazy contradictions? And now you can go, oh, well, no, see, so that's, I mean, don't, right? Like, be careful how you do it. No one wants a history lesson. Well, see, that's because you're mixing up with the moral law with the ceremonial, and you just watch the eyes glaze over, and you go. <laughs> but if we understand this, hopefully what that means is we can go, I know how to live now. So let me finish with a personal challenge. I want you to know this morning that God is not condemning you with his law. See, Paul was right when he said, Jesus has redeemed you from the curse of the law. See, this whole thing here used to like bind people up because it was about, does God like me? Am I good enough? And Jesus comes and he, he doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills the law. But then he also embodies the law and upholds the law and calls us to do the same. So I want to encourage you this morning that this sermon is not about going, are you good enough for God to love you? I'm telling you, he already does. What I'm telling you is that actually he loves you so much that he trusts you with that. And if we took this challenge as a church and we re-engaged with this challenge as a church instead of just trying to sweep it under the carpet, perhaps like our generations tried to do, maybe there'd be another shift. Yeah. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where are there some things in your life that you need to shift, which are not about other people? They're just about pleasing God, because He loves you, and He calls you a son, not a servant, and He puts the ring on your finger and the garment, and He, and he kills the fatted calf, and you just go, God, I just want to please you. I want to live a life. Lord, I realize there's times all the time where I drop the ball. And you still love me, and I'm so grateful for that. But Lord, help me to get better. Lord, there's things that I've been saying don't matter anymore because of the cross. And actually, I need to come back and pick some things to please God. Where do you need to live in community a little bit more? Where do you need to actually recognize that the church is God's gift and all of its brokenness, and he loves it, and actually, we can be part of its repairing or we can be part of its perpetuating its brokenness. Actually go, God, today I need to stop gossiping. God, today I need to stop sabotaging. God, today I need to stop assuming the worst of other believers. I need to stop having low expectations for me and high expectations for everybody else. And then finally, and this might be the most powerful one, which is interesting because it's the one we often gloss over is where is God calling you to establish some ceremonial laws in your life? Some little practices that reveal that God 
is real for you. That reveal that God is real today. And if we could take those three things and we could all just get 1% better at each of them, we'd need a bigger church. Because I promise you that the glory of God would be revealed like never before. We would celebrate community like never before. Not those churches that are full of infighting and, and fake, false, like where everyone has to pretend to be something that they're not. But that we come together in our brokenness and encourage each other and support each other and reveal God and please God. That's the church. That's what we have the privilege of belonging to in the 21st century. That's what we have the privilege of planting the seeds of for the next generation and the next generation and the generation after that. So let me pray for you. Lord, your Bible blows my mind. The stories in it, the wisdom in it, the authority in it. Um, Lord, I'll be the first in the room to admit that there's times where it's overwhelmed me and it's confused me. But there's been far more times where it's inspired me, encouraged me, set me free. Lord, that it's built me, shaped me, molded me. And Lord, we want to be built by your word, by your spirit, as a church, as a, as a light on a hill, as a city on a hill that can't be hidden, that can be seen and offers refuge for all. Lord, would you help us with this understanding and, and Lord, the application for each of our lives. Lord, thank you that your word is coming alive for people in this room again. Lord, I love hearing the testimonies. Uh, Lord, may this bring it that little bit more alive for us, that you, the Messiah, would be revealed to us in greater measure so that we might reveal you to the world. And that through our little things that we do, even in our brokenness, that many would come to see and know that the God of the universe is sovereign and is powerful and is, is Lord over all, but Lord is also deeply in love with them and sits with them and meets with them and journeys with them in the same way as you journey with us today and every day ahead. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I told you the series would be worth it, right? It might be taking three months to get through it, but it'll be worth it. Uh, we got another one coming up. Uh, I'm not going to tell you about that one, but again, it's going to do the same thing. It's going to hopefully, you know, the book and the cross and then the power of God will get bigger for you uh, and your Christian faith will be shaped by it. Uh, but for now, I'm getting a bit sweaty. Um, so we're going to call it there. Tea and coffee is served in the other building. Uh, feel free to go and do that. Um, service continues again.